clubhouse. Looking back, there were two journeys. One was filled with danger and death and despair. The other, adventure and wonder. I was on the latter, and I loved it. I didn't know enough to know they would collide. I didn't know enough to know how cruel and uncaring this world can be. The world doesn't care if you die. They won't listen to your screams. If you bleed on the ground, the ground will drink it. It doesn't care that you're cut. Welcome to Pod Clubhouse's coverage of 1883, a prequel series to Yellowstone. I'm Caroline. And I'm Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode three of 1883 called River. Tonight's episode was written by Taylor Sheridan, the series creator, and directed by Christina Alexandra Voros. This is Mrs. Voros's first episode directing of 1883, Caroline, but she's actually directed four episodes of Yellowstone in the past, including two from uh, this current season four. She directed episodes five and six of Yellowstone, Under a Blanket of Red, and I want to be him interesting well, i'm looking forward to checking out her directorial skills here i'm fascinating i'm looking ahead she looks like she's gonna be directing the next couple of episodes so yeah I think, yeah so we're gonna get uh we're gonna get a little taste of christina alexandra voros's take on 1883 Okay. Well, listeners, a few days before the series premiere, we were given the chance to participate in a virtual roundtable press interview with the core cast members. Stay tuned to the end of our discussion tonight because we'll be playing our roundtable interview with Sam Elliott. Oh, I was really happy to talk to you guys. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed uh, Sam was lovely. Talking to you guys about the show. It was good. Good time. <laughs> And the guy is a cowboy through and through. He's the most cowboyish cowboy I've ever heard that's cowboyed. He absolutely was, 150%. Just to give you guys a reminder, we've assumed you've watched this episode. And so we're not going to be doing a step-by-step recap of the episode. Uh, and obviously, there are going to be spoilers. We're talking about it. So if you haven't watched River, it's been up on Paramount Plus for about a week now uh, by the time you hear this. So you should definitely go watch it and then come back and listen to us uh, chat about it. Are you ready to delve into some episode themes, Mike? Jump into the river, as it were. As it were. The feet are getting wet. I think tonight's episode was really uh, distinguishable by its themes. I mean, just I always try to think of the best way to tackle it. Do we talk about characters? Do we talk about plot points? I don't know. This episode seemed very driven by the kind of couple of core themes. Uh, what were some of the themes that you saw when you were watching tonight's episode? Well, definitely leadership. Like, who is the leader? We have got to figure it out and decide, you know, is are we going to allow anyone within our immigrant group to be a leader? Are we going to listen to Shay? Are we going to listen to James? Who is going to lead this group? And it is very confusing at this point. And we can see how that's going to cause a lot of problems. Oh, for sure. I mean, the episode opens with kind of a, a pissing contest standoff between uh, Shay and James about which direction they should go in, which which is interesting because James is absolutely correct to question going 
east because it's going to take longer. West is the way to go, even though it may be more dangerous. And Shay lays out all the reasons it should be more dangerous. Thomas, uh, you know, pulls Shay aside and says, it's not great. You know, who's the leader here? If James is going to be questioning you, that's not a good thing. If there's two people who are trying to be leader, then the group has no leader. But at the same time, I think Thomas agrees with James. And James later on says to Shay, I was right to question you. The question of leadership here is a tricky one. And then among the immigrants, you have the Joseph question. Well, you have this clip. Let's listen to this clip uh, between Shay and Joseph. I thought you were in charge. I am in charge. Then act like it. Police your people. These are not my people. I don't control them. No one does. If you don't control them, then you aren't in charge. I will find someone else. You don't decide these things. This is a free country. That's a free country. That is Comanche land. Beyond it is no man's land, and that's where we're going. You ain't free yet. He's right, but is he a little too gruff, uh, a little too, you know, trying to catch flies with not honey, whatever the opposite of (laughs) not honey, vinegar uh, instead of honey? Well, I mean, it begs the question, is leadership controlling your people? I would say that good leaders surround themselves with advisors that they take into their opinions into account. And so I I think that for Shay, I mean, he should feel like it's okay to listen to James. It's okay to listen to Thomas and have a discussion. And he can still be the leader he can still be the one who who makes the decision ultimately or who who is the one who announces it to the rest of the people that type of thing but i think it's actually kind of a a crummy definition of leadership to think leaders must control their people like i am of the mind that leaders get their hands dirty they're in there they're they're right there pulling the rope with all of their fellow constituents if you will they're not just like standing off to the side controlling what everyone else is doing now do we need to look to one voice and do we need to have that person give us a consistent message absolutely i think that that that's necessary and especially in this group with so many communication issues so many um varying levels of expertise about the land and where they're going and how they need to handle this we need to have like a good expert voice talking to us but at the same time i don't i think control is a real nasty word that mm, i wish that i think that that's something that shay's gonna have to kind of find a different tact it's not gonna work certainly with the duttons he's not gonna control james and the rest of that group and it's not going to work with Joseph either. I mean, this is not the first time that Joseph, well, one, to begin with, I mean, think back to the very beginning of the series. Joseph said, I'm the one who speaks English, but I'm not the leader here, right? He doesn't, he gestures to like an older gentleman who, as far as I know, we've never seen or gone back to since as the leader of their group. Shay's response was, he doesn't speak English. He can't be the leader kind of thing. So Joseph already has had this idea of leadership. Really, it's point person, right? It's not really leader, but. Uh, it, this person for Shay to to work with as as the point person to coordinate with the immigrants moving, but Joseph also didn't want this role and and still hasn't really seemed to step up. Right, he's doing this very bohemian approach where we're all our own bosses kind of thing. Well, that doesn't. That doesn't really work, though, if people are stealing and and robbing from each other, though. That's the thing. Like, okay, so it's one thing to, like, be like, you know, I I want to be independent. I want to have my own thoughts. I want to I want to I want to take this journey of my own accord. Right. You're not here under duress. That's part of your freedom. But when it comes to taking other people's things, like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not that's not freedom. (laughs) Like, come on there. I, I wish that there had been a little bit of forethought. And I think that this goes 
goes back to your question in the last episode where you said, how many times has Shay taken this trip? How many times has he led a group? Because there is this question mark of like, why wouldn't he lay out some basics that go beyond those three things that would include nobody steals from each other? Everybody's got to get up at the same time and head the same direction. I, I, I love that you said that because because these guys who don't follow any of the three rules, right? That poor girl, we see her get a snake bite right in the doopy. That was the that was the first rule. The snake like, will kill you. You don't even know. That's an actual real concern that a lot of us women have, most especially in Texas. Okay, because. Snakes will go up in the pipes and they will like wrap around inside the toilet bowl even. Oh. So you could sit down on a toilet bowl and get a bite. Now, have I actually ever met anyone that this has happened to? No. Is this like the biggest folklore fear? Yes, it is. So when she did that and I was like, it put her butt. <laughs> like, no. It, that, oh, that hit my heart hard. When I was a little kid, I dropped a toilet, I dropped a toothbrush in the toilet bowl. Uh, it was my sister's toothbrush. And I remember my sister screaming at me, well, do something about it. And so instead of reaching in and grabbing it, I flushed. Uh, I screwed up the pipe pretty bad in the toilet because the toothbrush got like lodged. But, uh, and my father was not, not happy with me. But after that, for whatever reason, I always had this fear that the toothbrush was going to mutate into some kind of weird animal. I had like a waking, Ooh. I had like a recurring nightmare that it was going to become, it was, it was spiders not snakes but that mm. there were like spiders who were going to come crawling up while i was sitting on the toilet I don't well know, you so. can go look yeah. on like tiktok or something like that and if you type in something like snakes in the toilet you are going to find videos of there being a snake in the toilet and so the fear is not completely unfounded it's just like i have no i've never met anyone that this actually happened to but the second she started doing that with her dress i was like she's gonna get bit in the dup in the dup right, <laughs> right, so and that rule number one snakes will bite you in the doopy and kill you rule number three don't drink the water that they've broken that number of times shay has to reiterate that again so what does this guy do he goes and adds a brand new rule to to the immigrants which probably should have been laid out at the beginning let's listen to shay's new rule what the fuck for that this is what the fuck get anything that was hers nothing was hers it was his and he's a thief get everything that was hers the gypsies! Everything! When I speak, and you don't do what I say, you get hurt. That's the pattern here. And it don't stop till you do what I say. Or you run out of face. How can we travel? You can. Not with me. If you steal, you will stay where you stole. Go east, go south, go anywhere but my way. I see you again, I'm going to kill you. If you steal, you will stay where you stole. I mean, it, it's almost poetic the way he says it. That feels like that should have been something that was kind of laid out. But to the point of how often have these guys done this trip? How often have they worked with these European or immigrant groups? I think this clip, if nothing else, highlights something that we've mentioned but really haven't focused on. This is not just hom homogenous Germans. There are Germans. There are Russians. There are gypsies in this group. The, you know, to Shay and to Thomas, they may just be 
Germans or Europeans. Or just immigrants. Or immigrants, you know, not us kind of thing. But amongst themselves, that clip and this whole episode really highlights there are some major racial and and classism kind of divides among this group. They're still at the start of this journey. There's a long way to go before they get to Portland. Uh, This feels like something that is definitely going to play out over and over again and maybe even get worse. I hope that they they figure out some sort of pecking order that works for them because I do not believe that Shay can be the end all be all. I I don't think it's it's fair to James or Thomas or even Joseph. Like there has to be some amount of respect for the fact that Joseph is aware of his people more than Shay is. So then it's worth listening to what the concerns would be of Joseph. Now, I'm not saying that he should bend to Joseph's concerns or anything like that, but he needs to address them because otherwise, how are you leading the group? I mean, I've done so much work with <laughs> with my son about, about uh, leadership this semester because he's reading Animal Farm. And one of the huge questions are, what makes a good leader? And if you do not address the needs of the people you are leading, you are not a good leader. It doesn't matter if you have the quote unquote right answers. If you're not addressing their needs, you're a crappy leader. So for this whole group, Shay has got to listen to James. If he's going to lean on James's family to come and help, you know, with the Longhorns, if he's going to be leaning on them to to take up arms if needed, I mean, then you have to listen to the needs of the other people of the group complicated but necessary sure but there's also a lack of information right and i think this is where it comes on joseph's shoulders a little bit i you know i don't think joseph is communicating because maybe he's not focusing on it himself you know you need to be aware of why they stole this woman's stuff like they see that they see her like she's beneath them joseph doesn't really stick up for her until the big men try to revolt in the dead of night before shay comes and basically says you know come and try and take my shit when push comes to shove the the German that's challenging Joseph, you know, making a point that they don't need the guides. They only need their guns um, and their supplies. You know, he's he's making this point that she doesn't mean anything. And Joseph says, well, she's still a mother. She still has kids. I don't think Shay or Thomas understand that she being a gypsy is making her a target beyond just being a woman who's now widowed right it's more than that whereas these guys maybe wouldn't have gone gone and stolen the supplies of a german woman who had been widowed well and to be fair there's zero backstory in terms of like you know whenever this if if her husband did originally steal the other people's supplies Mm -hmm. if they didn't view shay as a leader and go to him and say like hey this is what's going on and they just went and stole it back well okay on one hand shay wants them to police themselves and deal with themselves on the other hand he's going to step in there only kind of on one side of it does that make sense like he's he's defending her whereas if their story is true then they didn't come to you when it first happened you know for sure but the guys make that plea to him right before he cuts their wagon loose and they say to him you know her husband it wasn't her stuff her husband stole that stuff from us originally and then repeats it again to joseph later in that that nighttime around the campfire and it falls on deaf ears both times and i think the point that they're trying to make there is it doesn't matter if the husband been did or did not steal it while he was alive this woman is now 
a widow by herself with two kids. You have to let her keep the stuff at this point, which is its own kind of, you know, brand of policing. And, and is that okay? You know, you can steal and not return the stuff as long as, you know, the circumstances have changed. I'm not sure. I mean, there is a question mark about just generally, like, you need to have some sort of value system to not prey on the weakest member of the group. If you're going to prey on the women and children, we don't want you a part of this group. That's fair. That's a fair thing to say. Regardless of what the women and children did, you can't prey upon them. With the second you see them, you know, at some sort of disadvantage, now they don't have, you know, a man sticking up for them. So you're just going to take their stuff. Like, if you had an actual issue with this man, they could have come to Shay and it could have been like, okay, this husband did this and whatever. And we could have had some sort of something or not, or go to Joseph or they you know, fight each other, whatever they do, but to wait until she's without protection and then steal. Okay. Well now the, the entire value system of the group is, is lowered quite a bit. Right. Uh, yeah. And I, and I think going back to the original question of leadership, I think you were right to say that this is maybe not actually a topic of leadership as, as much as it is policing a justice system for what is permissible in this moving city, because that's essentially what it is. They need some sense of this is punishable, this is permissible kind of thing. And they don't, they don't even seem to have that. That does seem to be something that Shay and Thomas should have established with whoever these quote unquote leaders were of the, of the group at the beginning of the trip, which we didn't see if they had that conversation. It doesn't seem like they did. You know, it seems almost like they left it to common sense. Like we don't steal from the, the weak and or powerless. Or we don't steal within our own group. There's no need to make it any harder on our group as a whole. You're, you are distinguishing between policing and leadership as, as Shay was. But I guess when I think about it, like, I don't know, you've seen pictures of like, say, like Nepal or something like that, where they use Sherpas and they're, and they're moving people. I've never looked at those people who are the Sherpas and thought of them as anything other than like directional guides and like cultural guides, you know, like, uh-huh. okay, so you can eat this, you can't eat that. Or you should walk this way. You shouldn't walk that way. But I never thought them of them as if these two people are arguing, the Sherpa needs to get involved. You know what I mean? Like I never would consider that that was their role. So I get it that in some way, Shay and Thomas and, and James for the most part can be leaders and be outside of the group because like whatever arguments they're having, but the way that this group is so, oh my gosh, I don't even know what the quite the right word is and like kind of naive. Like, Mm, I mean, actually coming in with this, like this, like we're free. Everyone's free to do whatever. Well, I think you don't understand what the word free means. And, and if you're making it more of a free for all, not like, people are actually free. That's very different. And how do we go together anywhere? It's very interesting to Kutz, as you, you revisit the conversation from last week that Elsa raises the point of freedom and independence. And we had that whole conversation about well, what is it to be free? And control came into that discussion also, this idea mm-hmm. of freedom. Can you just do whatever the fuck you want? Well, no, that's not actually how society works. And you're right, Thomas and Shay and James, to an extent, they're our guides. They, they are guides. They are Sherpas. They also can't live in a void, right? James is not going to be, let it be lawless because then his family is in jeopardy. Shay 
his sense of duty and honor is not going to be let it be lawless because then Noemi and her two boys are going to end up raped, killed or worse. Right. Uh, and, and be bullied. Well, and you can't have people again, like within your own group being fearful of people within your own group because there's too many outside things that you're fighting against that you, you have to be able to pull together on some level. This is an open point that will have to be revisited, right? Because Shay's final words on this after he has that great monologue where man he is a he is a terrifying guy when he comes down on you with those eyes mm-hmm. oof, made me shit myself and i'm not even the guy he was walking towards you you have to police yourselves or i'll do it you've seen how i do it and now you have to make a choice well we didn't get to see them make a choice so it's gonna be interesting over the next several episodes uh the rest of the season to see how this group evolves because this seems like it finally set the table for this and now it has to be dealt with in a definitive kind of way how did you feel about the fact that he lets those guys go very much knowing he's going, they're going to go to Fort Worth, they're going to get reinforcements, and they're going to try to hunt these guys down? I mean, he says it when he goes back to Thomas. I absolutely, I absolutely should have shot those men. You know, he's a soft heart. He doesn't want, he, he hears Thomas. Thomas is in his ear saying, these guys got it. These people have to trust us if they're going to follow us all the way for the next 2000 miles. But there also has to be consequences, right? There has to be some, you can't be stealing from each other, right? There has to be some baseline exist, coexistence here. So I think he, I think he thinks he's being merciful. I'm worried that it's going to bite him in the doopy, like the snake in the grass. I'm, af- I'm afraid that that, that that was some foreshadowing that could definitely be problematic coming, coming forward. Uh, for sure, for sure. Especially knowing that uh, Marshall Billy Bob is going to be, I think, in the remaining episodes of the series. Uh, yeah. Based on his episode count, I suspect we are not done with the law and enforcement uh, amongst this group. I, before we leave this idea of leadership, I wanted to read circle back to James really quickly because I'm, I'm curious if you agreed with his approach to Shay. I mean, he has inserted his family into this dynamic to an extent he has tied their fortunes together whether he regrets it or not do you agree with his approach to shay and following orders that you know what shay goes goes for the immigrants but not for me and this whole idea of you know we're going west you know fuck you do what you want but we're going west also i'm going to offer you deer meat and then not give it to you like, you know, like there's a lot. James is playing his own psychological game here. He's he's definitely doing some alpha male stuff with Shay, isn't he? James didn't come to Shay and Thomas. You know, they came to him in the bar and and basically coerced him to come along. And, and they did that because they needed his strength. They needed the things that he he brings to the table. That's what I'm saying about like good leaders need to surround themselves with advisors that they actually take their opinions into account. And that's the deal. Shay is kind of discounting the fact that James has his own reasons, his own expertise, his own background for why he's suggesting different things. And frankly, he's ignoring Thomas too. You know, when he's talking about winter, this is a constant issue. We're in winter now here in Texas. And I can tell you it went from 80 degrees yesterday. Today, it's 30 degrees. Winter is going to come upon them like a battering ram. It's not going to be like, oh, it's two degrees cooler today. It's not going to be like that. And so I feel for them. I did a little looking, Mike, and there was a lot of drought and weather related things that happened in the 1880s. So I'm pretty nervous about what types of things that they are going to come across as they're moving forward here. 
Okay, so we know from last week's episode and Elsa's voiceovers that we're in April, or at least we were last week. We were in the beginning of a- we were April 9th in last week's episode, and it doesn't seem like that much time has transpired between last week's episode and this week's episode. So let's say we're still in middle April somewhere. If they go east, Shay says in passing, that puts them at the South Pass uh, in the end of October, beginning of November, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November. That's seven, eight months away from where they are now, seven or eight months. And the South Pass is is a real place. It's a collective term for the two mountain passes uh, on the American, con- American Continental Divide in the Rocky Mountains uh, that exist in southwestern Wyoming. Wyoming, it's uh, sits right above Colorado, and the South Pass is about the middle of the state. If if you look on a map where it is kind of where the Rockies intersect Wyoming, it's basically the middle of Wyoming. Seven, eight months to go basically what is now one and a half states from where they are now, just about two states from where they are now. It's a very long journey because the South Pass in October, November is still not Oregon, right? It's still not Portland. It is still not Montana. There's still plenty of journey even after the South Pass. We're talking, this is this is going to be like a year's journey. That's crazy. Yeah. And they're so unprepared that they haven't even, as Thomas always reminds us every episode so far, we have, we haven't even less, we haven't even left Texas, boss. Like, <laughs> like half the group's dead. The other half is stealing from each other. We haven't even left the fucking state yet. And we still have a lot of road to go. Yeah. But that's like a whole joke in Texas that like, you know, you can drive and drive and drive and drive and you're still in Texas. So like for sure. So, so position huge. us a little bit. So we're in Fort Worth, right? We're a little bit mm-hmm. north of Fort Worth at the Trinity River, essentially, right? Right? Just mm-hmm. five, ten miles outside of town, where the Brazos, the river of the Brazos, where they're going to end up having to cross in the west versus the ferry in Denison to mm-hmm. the east. What does that look like if you're looking at a map, kind of generally? If you can like ballpark it, just so people have a general idea, oh, if they well, don't I have think a, you did to, a good job of explaining. But I mean, I think it's so the Brazos is to your west, um, and it runs, you know, parallel to the Trinity for the most part. You know, if you're heading back towards Denison, you're heading more towards the east, which you're in theory. You're north and east of Dallas. Now, there are multiple towns named Denison in Texas, and that's like that's an exciting little portion. But we did look up the ferry part, mm-hmm. um, and so I think we have a fairly good idea of where that would be. It's going in the wrong direction, that's for sure. You are heading north, which is positive, but you're going in the wrong way. And, and from what I read, wagon trains generally can go 8 to 20 miles in a whole day. And I think with this group, I'm thinking more like 8. <laughs> I'm thinking more like 5 if they're lucky. <laughs> They are a slow group, and it seems like we have to have a funeral every day. So, oh my god! Well, you know, one thing I wanted to—I wanted to give the show some credit here because it reminded me of Lost, a show I hold up as a, a great world-building exercise. We actually see Noemi, the the gypsy, who is the the focal point of this episode of this controversy about the stolen group. We actually see her wailing over the body of her dead husband last week, right mm-hmm. when the bandits come through town and they shoot Mary Abel and that whole thing happens with claire you actually see noemi uh in just a quick cut scene of the devastation and the chaos she's actually there she's crying you see the guy she's like kind of like standing like like kneeling over him and crying so just nice world building like noemi has existed like she has been there it, she just didn't pop up for this episode i thought that was pretty cool it was kind of how lost would a character would be in the background and then mm-hmm. like four episodes later they would be like, oh, yeah, that guy, you know, like he's been here <laughs> right. the entire time kind of thing. And then you think mm-hmm. about it, be like, oh, yeah, I have seen him. So it's a nice little world building that they're doing there. The mention of the South Pass, just before we move off of that and, and geography, 
it made me think that I think now that's where we are in the cold open of the series premiere where uh, Elsa takes the arrow in the stomach and they're fighting off the Native American attack. Um, mm, okay. and, remember, and remember, there were snowy mountains in there. And I said, I wonder if that's the Rockies, if they're in Colorado somewhere because of the snowy mountains in the, in the background. It makes sense to me if the South Pass is the goal for this season to get to, then that's interesting to me if that's actually where they are when that is like that's our end point is they're approaching or about to go through uh the south pass in uh, in mid wyoming because again that's not the end of the trip there's still there's still a lot of journeying to go after that so i wonder if that's their goal to uh, to get to it makes sense to me. And I mean, it's it's difficult because, you know, that part of the world, I don't know uh, one background mountain from another, whether we're looking at Wyoming or we're looking at Colorado. I mean, but, Rocky Mountains all I mean, look I snowy. Yeah. Guess, you yeah. know, they I, all I look think snowy to me. Well, and it's fair that they mention that as a, like a specific pause in their travels and somehow like it makes sense to me if there would be like a big moment there, you know. So, yeah. Just from my reading, the South Pass was a was a trail that was actually used by Native Americans long before the Oregon Trail became a thing, but that the Oregon Trail also used and cut through the South Pass uh, as part of its um, as part of its like kind of formal journey to the point where actually I guess there's preserve there. You can if you go to the South Pass, they have like you could see wagon. Uh, tracks like mm. dug into the earth that have been like preserved if you go That's to like amazing. the museum yeah kind of cool like a, like really like a, a history preserved for you know 150 plus years i had sent some info when you had when you had texted me and asked me about the maps you know here in texas uh texas history is a big part of what the curriculum actually is i, I pulled out one of my kids textbooks and and i was just leafing through it then to just read through like the 1880s section and one of the things that stuck out to me talking about just like travel and, and transportation was the was the railroad and how how we take it for granted like we're like oh he just you know stuck his family on a train and of course it would show up and i you know i had sent you that little thing and we'll, we'll have to put it in the notes for our listeners we'll put it up on twitter or facebook somewhere where you can see the little passage in the book because it is fascinating this train was going from houston to austin and basically it was this quote from someone saying about how they had planned this entirely like um, procession for when the train got there. They were so excited, but it was hours and hours and hours and hours behind when they thought it would arrive just because it was not this reliable source of transportation that we all think of it now. Like the whole trains run on time. This was still like very unregulated. Um, do you know, it, was, it wasn't until 1883 that we even had uh, like standardized time zones. I did not know that. That's so like everything is so weird, right? Like all the things that we take we take for granted. Things like everyone knows what time it is in where they are. Nope. <laughs> like that's not a thing. All of this was much more precarious than we're giving it credit for because we just think, oh, well, you just put his family on a train or you just take your wagon and yeah, you go slower, but you're fine. Like, no, this was all much harder. You should join our Facebook group. It is the Yellowstone, comma, 1883 ampersand 46 discussion and news group uh it is run by caroline me and uh some of our other fellow yellowstone podcasters um it's just a great place to go and talk about all of the yellow 
the Yellowstone universe of shows. Um, but we'll definitely put that little clip up there because I think that article, that little snippet was from 1871, which is yes. just 12 years beforehand. I mean, that not, a, not a lot of time. And again, you're absolutely they right. They were I working mean, really hard to regulate things like the railroad and try to make things happen on time. But again, if you don't even have standardized time zones, good luck making things run on time. I mean, know? you guys, I, 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 a little behind the scenes, Pod Clubhouse spans several time zones. It is still, it, in 2021, it is still a constant source of conversation <laughs> about what time zone are we talking about when we're scheduling timing and recordings. Absolutely. So, uh, Absolutely. All the time, all the time. Is, is that central or is that eastern that you're talking right? about? Right, or so, are we over oh in Lord. London? Oh, London Lord, if we're time. dealing with one of our London friends, I mean, <laughs> right. what time of the year in London? Exactly. Uh, or Canada, we had to deal with that too, that different time zones we were over in Pacific, we were all over the place. Uh, but they're so polite though, they always bend to whatever we want to do. <laughs> so I think that's leadership. The other, one of the themes that really stuck out to me was another revisiting motivations. Uh, specifically, what are Shay's and Thomas's motivations for doing this trip? Now, this has been kind of a, a an ongoing conversation between Shay and Thomas, I felt like, insofar as one of the other saying, one saying to the other, we're doing this trip or we're not doing this trip or should we back out or we agreed to do this trip. The more the show goes on, the less it seems to me that this is actually what Thomas and Shay do as their normal gig for Pinkerton Detective Agency. I, I, I just feel like this is something that neither of them are used to. And last week we heard Shay say aloud to Thomas that he just wanted to see it one more time before it was settled, before it was ruined. Meaning the 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 untamed west right the wild west before it was settled and populated great that's a motivation but then in this episode he also mentions when noemi she's she's trying to convince him right she's she's grabbing his face and grabbing his crotch and saying i'll i'll be a good wife to you you can do this for me you will farm you know i want to marry you and shapes really again with the women who come on come on to him for you know pushes her off and he says to her I won't be there to teach you. That's a very troubling line for me. When you put it together with that, and then you put it together with this clip from this episode. During the war, we fought a battle at this place called the Wilderness. There was nothing around the wilderness. I fired my rifle so many times, the barrel melted. Just trooped like rotten fruit. So I killed with my pistol. And when I ran out of bullets, I killed with my sword. And when my sword broke, I killed with my boots and bare hands. When the battle was over, and I looked behind me, the wilderness was gone. Not a tree left standing, chopped down chest high by bullets. We killed 5,000 men that day. When I say killing you means nothing to me, I mean it. Killing you means nothing. He has zero fucks to give. He seems like he is on a one-way mission. The The more you hear him speak, when, especially in the context of he has no family left, right? The series mm-hmm. opens with him burning his house down with his deceased wife and daughter inside of it. Is Shay sick, maybe? This is this feels like a one-way journey for Shay, the way he talks. Yeah, and I think that additionally that, that Claire shed light on that idea that we spoke last week about your whole job, your purpose in life is to push your generation 
generation forward to, to get your family to that next step so that you your line goes on. Once he loses his wife and his daughter, we had said, like with Claire, your your job in many ways feels done. Like, what what are you doing here anymore? Are you fathering more children? If you're not, what are you doing? You know, so I feel like in many ways that Shay has shown us, yes, he has his own regrets and he has these moments that he wants to sort of rectify, like seeing the land again and and being out there again. Maybe he didn't appreciate it the first time or, or that type of thing. And now that he sees what, you know, quote unquote, civilization does to land, maybe he, he feels like he was going to appreciate it this time. You know, I, I didn't take it as broadly. Uh, when he says it to Noemi, I took it more like, I'm not settling down with you. I'm not going to be creating another family. I'm not going to, I, I'm not going back to that purpose, if you will, like Mike, I've served that part of my life and it didn't work out and I'm not, I'm not going to be there for you. I'm not going to do that. But I mean, Shay's overall complete vibe is that he is done. And this is a, this is one of those bucket list rides, you know, where he's going to check off everything, see everything one one more time and then be done. Um, And so I, I, there is this, this huge looming cloud of sadness over him for sure. Yeah, and I think Thomas really tries to alleviate that. You know, I love the I, they remain my favorite relationship in the show. There's this great part where he's talking about uh, he says to him about the jokes. You know, yeah. he says, you, "You see what I did there? Jo- joke upon a joke kind of thing." I, I just like that Thomas keeps trying to get to him. Right? He's trying. He's trying to make him smile. He's trying to 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 bring some some sunlight into his his uh eeyore cloud but i on the on the i won't be there to teach you i think it was clever because i think it works both ways i think you're 100 mm-hmm. percent right specifically saying like i'm not going to be there to be a fucking farmer like i'm done with that kind of life you know he says like, you know i had a wife and want another yeah. wife you know but i think it also is the large i think there's also this existential idea of I won't be around to teach anyone like this is this is Cowboy's last ride, you know, mm-hmm. all in kind of thing, because um, I'm all out. The revelation for me, and I'm curious what you think about it, was Thomas and Thomas's motivations, which was not really something that we've heard about at all on the show. And one thing we, we've talked about since the beginning was that we really wanted to to get a better idea of of Thomas and, and the way LaMonica Garrett is, is playing him. Uh, let's listen to this this clip. These are the two clips I'm calling Kids 1 and Kids 2 because uh, this really kind of really pulls back the curtain on Thomas for the first time. You having second thoughts? You gonna tell me you ain't? Yeah, I'm having them. But I figure maybe that one of their kids has a kid and, and that kid does something. Something that that the world's better. There kids in it. Know what I mean? Rule ain't getting better, Thomas. No matter how many kids are in it. So that's during the day, and then later that night, after uh, Shay has the standoff with the Germans, and then he says, "I absolutely should have shot that man." You know, he continues on and has this this continuation of that conversation. Maybe should have just shot him. I absolutely should have shot him. My daughter's one of those kids could have made the world better. Yes, she was. 
We're doing this for the same reasons, Thomas. Oh, these two. They, they talk to each other in such a way it just gets right to my heart. Thomas is a dreamer. Thomas is an optimist. You know, he, he fits right in with Elsa and James, as it turns out, right? When he's not beating you until you have no face left to beat, there's this soft, gooey part of, of Thomas that I don't think we've ever really seen until this part. This idea of maybe one of these kids will do something to make the world better. I love that. I love that idea that that's what's burning him, you know, pushing him forward. Well, think of what Thomas has seen in his lifetime. I mean, he would have seen and, and we can only assume experienced slavery. He would have seen and experienced the Civil War. He's on the other side of that as what we assume is a free man by his own accord, I believe. I mean, nothing has been explicitly said, but I believe all of these things. He's employed with, with a white man. I mean, all of these things would have been unheard of, you know, within his lifetime. So I think that he has the sense that things can change at a core level because he's experienced true change in the world around him. Whereas maybe for Shay, he isn't feeling that same personal connection with the change in the country. I, I think that's right. I think that's right. I, I mean, this is he he more than maybe anyone on this journey is really living in a whole new world from probably how he grew up. I mean, I, it has to be right. I mean, they don't tell us that, but it has to be different than what he grew up in. I didn't really notice it before this episode, but but Thomas has got some little has got some grays in his beard. You know, mm. I, I, I he struck me as someone who was on the younger side, not like in his 20s, but like maybe early 40s around the same age as James and Mark. Margaret, but he's got some grays in his beard and, and there's some life lived in his face that I didn't really appreciate before this episode. They really pull in on him tighter than they had. And I was like, man, imagine what he has seen. Imagine how open the world is to change if you're him from, you know, how it started versus how it's going kind of thing. Well, and just to be clear, the life expectancy in 1860 and that in that time frame, get make a guess. Uh, 30. 39. Oh, geez. Yeah, so Shay is like a... <laughs> he's like a crib keeper walking around, you know, and, and I mean, in all honesty, I mean, all he, I mean, really, who knows how old some of these people would be? I mean, I'm guessing that, let's see, how old, I mean, I think we think that the Duttons are probably in their 40s, right? Early 40s, right? They've got a 17 yeah. year old. So I think Thomas is roughly the same as them. I think that that's a fair guess. Um, they all have grays, men that's and women. That's true. That's true. Um, so, yeah, for sure. I, mean, I can't imagine if, if not for for all the hair dye in the world, I think we'd see a lot more grays up in here. You know, I one of the biggest things that I took away from from this moment with Thomas was really his his sense of how humor can get us through the tough times. And that's something that I related to immediately. Like I grabbed hold of him. My twins were in the NICU for six months. The amount of jokes that I told being in like the scrub room, like getting ready to go in to see them every day. And it, and it seems so crazy, but at the same time, it's like, this is what I have to do in order to get through the day. And, and I just appreciated that about Thomas. And again, reflecting on what Thomas's life must have looked like, even if somehow he, he himself wasn't a slave, which it, it doesn't really make sense that he wasn't. Even if he wasn't, certainly he still, you know, bears the, the weight of, of his, his family members or other people, I'm sure. So, he, he had to find some strength in humor and in finding his way through. And he's kind of the only character we've seen to find strength in humor. And boy, I just relate to that so much. 
Are you somebody who can make jokes when things are bad? I think so. It's probably the only time that I'm maybe even really funny, uh, (laughs) hopefully maybe in stressful situations. Yeah, it's how I approach it. It's my coping mechanism for sure. The funny joke in a difficult situation. You know, if you're looking looking to laugh at a funeral, definitely seek me out. Um, (laughs) I'm always like, don't look at me in a funeral because if you make eye contact, I'm going to start saying something inappropriate. (laughs) I can't help it. It's the only way I can get through. My heart is so throbbing raw like most of the time that like if I didn't have humor as some amount of a shield I I think I would be a mess so I I have to use that to try to protect myself in some way and Thomas is just he's such a wonderful balance to Shay I'm Mm. so happy that they found La Monica and Sam together for this for this duo I mean I almost said for this role because it almost seems like they're one entity you know like I can't see Thomas without Shay or Shay without Thomas I don't want that you know they kind of are <laughs> there's, something, there's something there right i i just need i need them to be together all the time which that i know moving forward mike i mean i one of the times my heart's gonna break is when some at some point i feel that the two of them will part ways and that will be a really rough time i 100 percent agree i'm not looking forward to that but i feel like that is something especially the way Shay talks my god he talks he talks in just such doom and gloom i mean when i i made an eeyore joke before but but he's like Eeyore with a gun, right? I mean, he's and, and, and a temper. One of the reasons why Thomas works so well, one of the really huge things that I've noticed about Thomas is that he really never tries to buck Shay up, right? I, I've seen a little quote having to do with like Eeyore and they say like, it's really cool how his friends continue to invite Eeyore. They continue to have him around. They continue to hang out with him, but no one ever sits there and tells him he can't be sad or he can't be feeling the way he is. They, but they don't leave him out. They don't ignore him. They don't whatever. And Thomas is like the same way. He doesn't, he's not being like a jokester, like I'm trying to make you laugh. I'm trying to lighten the mood Change all the time. Right, right. right. He accepts that this is Shay's feeling and he has endured tremendous loss. And so Thomas is just like, I'm still going to stand by your side and you don't have to be any different. Even it's hard to like laugh at this. But when he shows up and Shay's like got the gun, you know, at his own house and he's like, can you get this done? Because I don't want to dig a hole at night. You know, like that kind of stuff. Like that's that dark humor, right? That's that humor in a stressful situation. And it's not grabbing Eeyore and saying, you can't do this. Don't do that. You know, it's just like you can be who you are and I can still stand beside you and I don't have to change who you are, how you handle things. I'm going to balance you with my own things, but you don't have to be different. That's really a respect and dignity between the two of them that I really just love. Uh, this was my favorite La Monica episode so far because I feel like it was the first time that we really kind of started to dig into Thomas. And I think La Monica Garrett's just doing such a good job of peeling back those layers. This episode in particular, I mean, you have that clip I played it before where he's beating the guy's face, the thief's face. And he says, you know, the pattern here is I keep hitting you until you do what I say or you run out of face, which, you know, again, badass. I don't want to fuck with either of these guys. But then he's incredibly sweet and kind and patient with noemi and he gives her what i think is that great advice telling her not to marry out of fear but he's also 
he's just really sweet to her. I got to tell you, at the end of this episode, I'm kind of shipping them when they pull out and he's driving, you know, he's whipping the carriage with her sitting next to him. I was like, man, I, I kind of maybe want to see these two together. Like, that's a love story that I think I could get behind. See, and here's the thing. I'm saying I, I would actually like to see them not get together and really appreciate having um like modeling on TV. The idea that a man could be kind to a woman and a woman can can be kind to a man and it not be a relationship like have him honestly just reach a hand out and give her encouragement and then work back and forth and have it not go romantic Mm -hmm. there's something to that that i think is refreshing and all the advice he gives her of not marrying out of fear don't settle you know you can learn skills on your own all that stuff i mean that is some fresh talk in 1883 you know i mean we went back last week and talked about choices and options for women not marrying out of fear is not even in anyone's thought process you 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 marry out of fear plenty you know so and i think people certainly still do it today but i think with the limited choices what choices that woman have she did not even know how to run her own little wagon much less you know or or protect her her supplies or anything i mean she was a sitting duck right so the fact that thomas like rode with her i feel like that's because it's it's unlikely that the two guys that he ran off there were the only ones who knew those two guys right like they probably have families and stuff too so it's probably a good idea like they said keep her up front you know let's all like kind of pay attention because i bet there's going to be other people who want to get some retribution on that sitch you know it's a good take to have them just be kind and friendly to each other i think i i think i i saw romantic sparks there more just because i feel like thomas he's not at the end of his life the way shay is in so many ways right shay got the daughter he got the wife he had that those moments as far as we know thomas hasn't maybe he has and maybe we just haven't gotten learned that maybe he did have a family at one point that he doesn't have anymore but let's assume he hasn't i think i was thinking more along the lines of I want him to have the happy ending. You know, he, if it, to the extent that he is on the more beginning, that part of his life, where Shay is at the end of that part of his life, the family part of his life. I like these two together. I like their interaction. It seemed sweet. She seemed receptive to his help, but without the desperation that she was doing with Shay. And and I think that's part of how he was talking to her, right? He was giving her instruction. He was telling her stay stay away from the captain. You don't want anything of that that grouchy old bastard kind of thing. He was being he was being sweet and kind to her, but he seems like someone who is maybe do some sweet and kindness himself. I guess that was my my thinking. I, I love the idea of Thomas finding a companion. I love the idea of someone loving Thomas for who he is and what he brings to the table. And this certainly is a meet cute kind of setup coming to her aid and, and helping her out and 1883 style to be sure. Meet cute 1883 right. style. Yeah, Making yeah. all the jokes though about like, is she crying because y'all are getting married or not? <laughs> like the whole thing. Like, you know, again, I, the desperation there with Shay and the way that, that she acts with him. I mean, it's just... We've seen it. We've seen it so many times. And it just feels so real. Like, I hope everyone latches on to that desperation, that whole, I I can do this, I can be there for you, I can do anything you want me to be, you know, all that stuff. Oh, man, heavy on my heart, real heavy on my heart. And it still hits me in 2022 now than, than it does, you know, in 1883. 
uh, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up women, uh, because I think it is just a great segue <laughs> to another, I think, major theme of this episode. Let's listen to another clip. I always thought of mothers like nervous chickens, too worried about their clutch to ever hunt for a worm. In my mind, my mother was a banker, hoarding my freedom like money. I never once thought of her as a woman with desires and dreams and passion. Though passion is the thing that made me. I lie awake at night, and my dreams for this life burn inside me, as if I'd walked to the campfire and tried to eat it. I watched my mother, and I felt foolish for thinking the notion of eating fire was mine alone. It was hers first. Then she gave it to me. I watched her ride, and I didn't see my mother. I saw a woman. And the woman was magnificent. I mean, there's a lot in there. To say nothing of phrases that she includes, again, more dream imagery where she dreams of walking up to the fire and eating it, but hoarding my freedom like, uh, you know, like a she's a banker hoarding my freedom like money. I mean, mm-hmm. themes that we're talking about every week, it seems, on the show. But just this idea of seeing her mother for the first time in the new way, I was particularly... This, this is a concept that seemed to be that seems to be very mother-daughter specific, if, if it's something that's in fact real at all. I think sons and fathers go through something different uh, transformationally. But I was curious, did this line resonate with you with, as a mother and daughter yourself? It, it, was there a part where you realized, oh, my mom is not just a mom. She's actually a woman with, you know, who, who was young and, and, and passionate just like I was once, if not still. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I had a very unique situation in this particular part because just happened to be that one of my daughters was sitting next to me and she she just came in the room and she sat down on the couch watching uh, the television, just kind of looked at it like, oh, what is this? And it happened to be during this speech and her face, she didn't look away from the TV. She didn't talk. She didn't say like, what are we watching or anything like that? Like she was listening and I was looking at her face listening to this there was recognition in her eyes like my mom is not just a mom like my mom has like other things like you could see it like changing on her face it was fascinating every daughter hopefully goes through this this part where you start to see your mom as something other than i think i think the biggest change is you start to see her my first change was to see her as a wife like i didn't see Mm. i never saw her as a wife i always saw her as my mom so then in my mind and so then once i realized like she has a an active relationship with my dad, which I mean, they're married and everything, but, but the idea that like she was a wife somehow, I don't know, was like a big realization whenever I had that. And then definitely once I had kids myself and, and again, I had very extreme circumstances. I was 25 when I had my twins. And so for me, I went from a hundred percent their kid to like massive amount of respect was suddenly given to me because I was a mom because I was dealing with life and death decisions, like coming at me every day, all the time. Uh, the dynamic between me and my parents switched like 
like in a moment, you know, it just all the whole paradigm went like where like I my opinions were being respected. My my comments were being respected in a completely different way. Definitely. My parents were together since they were in high school. So they had comments about each other. We had pictures about them when they were kids. Um, they had stories about when they were kids. So I always had some amount of an idea of my mom as a younger person. But that that grown woman, she has her own thoughts, her own dreams, her own, you know, especially like for her career goals. That was like a big part that really seemed separate from our family that I didn't ever really wrap my brain around until I was an adult. All of those things and how capable she is. She's a nurse. Is she, ma- is she, is she magnificent? Yeah, my mom is. My mom absolutely is. You wouldn't hurt my feelings by saying you act just like your mother. I'd be like, thanks. Right. <laughs> because right. she is capable and smart and, you know, brings home the bacon and does all the things that, that you, you know, my parents are true partnership in, in those things. And so, you know, there's a lot that I respect about my mom that I didn't understand early on. And in fact, I had the, I had the strangest feeling recently. My my mom's best friend from when we were all younger just recently joined our book club and it's and it's by zoom because we're all zooming right but i had the strangest thought i thought how many conversations must my mom have had with this woman who i certainly knew and was friendly with but never was like you know more than just like hi you know walking through the room how many times must she talked about me and things that I was making her crazy about? They had to suss out some Caroline issue, you know, right. like I do How with do my best friend. How do you solve a problem like a Caroline? Yeah, like yeah. I do with my best friend, you know, and I and it was the strangest feeling of having this woman come back into my world and be like, whoa, she's going to like know some shit about me. Probably more than I know about me because I've forgotten right. about that time I did some bullshit at school, you know. I think even in that moment, like she became a real woman to me as well. So I think that there's like an ongoing process of like family members, most especially. But I think women going from just those authority figures to like, they're actual people who have thoughts and hopes and dreams and and weaknesses, just like me, you know, and that's amazing. Parents, they're real people too. Yeah, as it turns out. Now, I know for men, I feel like it's the opposite. I feel like we, I feel like I always see, like they said, too busy dealing with the kids to ever like really like be productive and and, and like be sort of the go-getter. That's a little different for me, but I feel like for men, I feel like they always look at their dads as like this big, strong men and then over time they realize dads have weaknesses too. I, I mean, I think the father-son dynamic is less, oh, he's a man, not just my dad. I think that I think sons grow up always being aware of that. And I think the challenge for sons and fathers is the invincibility factor of I can do whatever I want or anything can happen to my father and he's invincible. And as you get older and you experience life yourself, you realize, no, it's not. Your dad may just be putting on a face and barely keeping his shit together to appear that way to you. But no one is invincible. Your father uh, separate. There's a competitive aspect, though, to it also with fathers and sons. Whereas here, Elsa is telling us about how she's she's realizing her mother is her just in the future right you know obviously she had passions her passions are what made me she says i think for sons there is an aspect this this edible aspect really of wanting to get older bigger stronger to i don't want to say replace your father but become an equal to your father to 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 be seen 
as big and strong and as indestructible as them, you know, like a goal to reach to, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, because you're the next, you know, step in the ladder. You are, I mean, technically, you are replacing them, right? It's like, the Simba to the Mufasa, right? It's yeah, it's and that. The, you it's know? rarely looked at like that with women. Like we're not. I'm. I. I and, but but there is also weird competition for your father's attention. Yes, I was going to say that when you said about you never really thought about your your mother as a wife. I, I was going to bring up. I, I think there's an aspect to that, right? Because daughters are maybe competing for their father's affections and so they're not really focused on the mother as a wife because that's kind of a challenge there's something there i mean i definitely think we see it in terms of like you know um we see it here with having margaret, and james and margaret right yeah, yeah. well and specifically margaret saying you know what i'm gonna go ride like you know like james doesn't call the shots and decide who does what all the time like there was something there that was about it didn't have to be like james picked which woman went mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, Margaret was like, uh-uh, like, I'm going, you know, and you can go, right. fine. There is a lot there, and I don't and I don't even want to make it, like, creepy or weird. It's not, it, I'm not going to say father's affection. I'm going to say, like, some sort of attention, though, like, uh-huh. because, you know, he's obviously spending an awful lot of time mentoring Elsa and into becoming whatever. And there's, there's sort of a, you know, a bit of a butting heads with what that mentoring should look like, because Margaret's also doing the same thing. But really, we are having a lack of James and Margaret time, and we've talked talked about that that like i you know i'm wondering having that moment in the tub was like a big deal having them sit at the campfire and talk this time we haven't had a lot of that of the two of them actually getting to talk but we have had a lot of elsa and james time i'm interested i like that they they spent this episode kind of again working on the balance of that having margaret become important to elsa and margaret speaking to james and having james go off with john you know there was a lot of of kind of reshuffling the deck to have people spend time with the other people yeah and and one of the Margaret aspects, because, you know, Faith Hill really hasn't had as much to do actively in the show so far. Well, Margaret hasn't had as much to do in the show so far as James and Elsa. They've definitely been more of the thrust. This episode definitely went towards balancing that a bit more. And I, a part of that that I liked a lot is that, yes, we're hearing Elsa's voiceover. So we're hearing her inner thoughts. We got to see Margaret's actions in treating her daughter and treating Elsa less like a daughter and more like an adult equal in this, right? She gives her sass. You know, she says, you know, girl, I've forgotten more about horse riding than you'll ever know kind of thing. Kind of forcing Elsa into this new paradigm shift, right? Margaret really forces that issue by being kind of a badass woman on horseback, right? Well, she is fearless. She is going, you know, she is out there whipping the horse, the, the cattle and, and yeehaw and, and getting it going. It can be kind of comical at times as a mom to have, uh, you know, your daughter most especially sort of assume you don't know what you're doing, you know, and, and have to look at them and be like, kid, I have done this a thousand times. Like, I had this moment even with my own mom where, like, she was she was trying to tell me I wasn't making my oatmeal correctly. Now, <laughs> I have one child who, ha- who has eaten oatmeal every single day of her life, and I did the math, and I said, but how, how long have I been making oatmeal? We figured out it was, like, over 5,000 bowls of oatmeal. Oh, my Lord. I was like, I bet I make a pretty mean bowl of oatmeal. <laughs> like, like you have those moments where you're kind of like back and forth with like, who really knows what they're doing, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And, and you have those like aha moments of like, no man, like you need to, you need to check yourself over there because I have, I have ridden more horses than you, you know, you will ever realize. I think that there's a lot going on there that, 
yes, helps Elsa understand, but but I, I'm sure it was an ongoing thing with them. Every time Elsa gives like a little like, and Marcus would be like, kid, <laughs> you don't even know. And I have had the conversation with my own kids whenever they complain about me doing X, Y, Z. And I'll say, you know what? I am a person unto myself. Like I have right. my own things that I like to do that don't have anything to do with you. And in order for me to be a good mom to you, I have to be a whole person. I can't come to you and be just like a mess. So let me do my own thing here. And then I will come back to you and be a better mom. And they're like, okay, all right, all right. But I have to say that, you know, and I feel like Margaret is a lot about that too. Like I need to go stretch my own legs and whether you come or don't come, whatever, you know, but like I have my own reasons. Uh, you mentioned the the conversation with Margaret and James around the campfire. It really is something that the show has not had not since the hot, not since the bathtub scene really in the premiere have we had one on one time with these two where we get to watch them catch up about the events of the day. And I really liked it. I thought it was a nice moment in this episode that had a lot of violence and death imagery in it. Just the you know just reflecting on the fact that their daughter is growing up and she's becoming a woman. And also Margaret not taking a piss out of her daughter. You know talking yeah. about how good a writer she is like she had a new respect for her daughter you know she, she has did. she hadn't seen her in action in a while it seemed the way same way elsa hadn't ever really maybe noticed her mother in action margaret was like you know she rides and she's fearless but she's not reckless like really really nice parent moment for those two there I agree so whole, wholeheartedly. And I was, I, I'm so happy to see that Margaret didn't play that down in that moment because it would have been really easy to be like, oh, she's too big for her britches or some business like that. But to be so complimentary, oh, it was such a nice, a nice like bookend, I guess, to Elsa's, you know, compliments of her mother. But also then also worrying about how, you know, voicing aloud this fear. And again, this is the little bit of Claire inside of her. And again, we had some feedback about people about whether, Claire was really James's sister or Margaret's sister. I know she's credited in IMDb as being a Dutton. I'm still sticking with that. Claire was Margaret's sister. I think that was just for purposes of not having to not having okay. give Margaret uh, Claire a, a maiden name or whatever. <laughs> Interesting. Everything about it still makes me think that she was Margaret's sister. Anywho, um, it, you know this this doubting fear that we talked about last week, right? That this is the nightmare scenario. Margaret voiced, you know, early on that their daughter's going to come of age and there's no gentleman around, right? She voices that, you know, tonight to James, you know, who's she going to marry kind of thing, which leads to a kind of a funny conversation, you know, that I'm no gentleman and do you regret marrying me kind of thing. You know, it, she's still a mother, right? They're they're adults now. They've reached this new uh, plateau or new area of their relationship as two women, but Margaret is also still Elsa's mother and worries about things like who is she going to marry who's going to be around for her to marry i like that i like that they didn't lose sight of one because of the other you know what i mean yeah and and i think it goes to that theme that we were speaking to earlier about you know the the biggest purpose you have is the generations moving forward mm -hmm. your your family line and so yeah who she marries and and what that you know gene pool is and what that brings to the table and everything yeah that's that is the sole purpose of these people right now is just to get their generation to the next generation before we move off of that fireside conversation with Morgan and james I, as a yellowstone fan i'd be remiss if uh, i didn't call out this little clip right here did you marry a gentleman? I did not. <laughs> worked out all right for you. Oh, yeah. It worked out great. <laughs> Just like I dreamed it. 
What would you change? Not a thing. I wouldn't mind a house. A big one. If you don't mind. I'm gonna build you a house so big you get lost in it. Such a nice call out to what the Dutton Ranch house, the lodge, will end up looking like and all of the houses that are on that property. And and how many conversations have been had in Yellowstone over the years? I remember, I remember there was one with John and Monica, I think, about getting lost in, in the house and it was so big that they ne- need a map kind of thing. I thought this was a nice little Easter egg. And, and wanting family in the house, John's like love of a need to have people in the house, like that whole, there's a lot of aching and who's in the house matters. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a big, a lot of that. Right. It was this season now. John was talking about how his great grandfather wanted to build a house, built it so big so all of his family could always be under the roof there. You you echo, you hear the echo of that in James. See, I'm gonna bid you a house so big in, in this scene here. The show's done a nice job. They haven't really they haven't been hitting you over the head with Yellowstone bits and pieces, but they've done some nice subtle callbacks. This was one of the less subtle ones, but I thought it was still a nice one. One big callback, I think, to Yellowstone is in the father-son relationship. We, we talked about mother and daughter here, but I think this idea of John, of James taking John out, little John, out to hunt requires us to stop and, and think about the ritual of hunting in the Dutton family and how it's been reflected, because now we've gotten two episodes, one of Yellowstone, one of this, of 1883, where we've gotten to see this first hunt, right? Um, so I want to play you two clips just to see how you... so so we and the listeners can see how the shows have treated it. This is from, this clip is from episode 206 of Yellowstone, Blood the Boy. Uh, it features John, Casey, Kevin Costner, John, Casey, and Casey's son, Tate, going out for Tate's first uh, a deer hunt. You see him through there? Yeah. Okay. I want you to put those crosshairs right on your shoulders. Let me know when you got him in there. I got him. Okay. Now take a real deep breath. Pull the trigger real slow. First deer. Come on, we gotta blood you. What does that mean? It means you gotta wear his blood to honor him. Come here. Come here. Hey. It's alright. It's a big deal taking a life. Everything on this earth has to do it to survive. Even trees. The big ones kill all the smaller stuff beneath it. Killing's the one thing that everything on this planet does to survive, Tate. It's the one thing we all share. Now you share it too. 
All right. And now here is tonight's uh, clip between James and little John, little five-year-old John Dutton, uh, with little John going out for his first year hunt. Got him, son. Now come here. It's your first kill, so I gotta blood you. There we go. You took a life to give us life. So now we say thank you. To who? To the deer. But the deer's dead. He can't hear us. Well, we say thank you anyway. How do we say thank you? You just say it. Thank you. When you kill a thing, son, it makes you a little less man, a little more animal. Now we try to find the balance between them. That's all life is. Understand? I didn't mean this first time I Now I know those were both very long clips, but there's just so much similarities there. I, I felt I felt it was really useful to play them both kind of in their entirety, um, even with cutting them down. But from the ritual of how to hunt, right? The putting the crosshairs behind the shoulder, the pulling the trigger slowly, the way they explain it. I mean, that's how you hunt a deer, but the way the generations of Duntons explain it. But then even more importantly, the the why you wear the blood of the deer for your first kill and what does it mean to honor the deer and, and, and what does it mean to take a life and why do we do it? Such great continuity of this lesson passed down between Duntons 136 years or so right i think i'm putting that 2019 that scene between uh tate and casey and john um so like that's 136 years of dutton history that is still being passed down i love that kind of tradition (laughs) and ritual you know i'm a tradition and rituals kind of guy i that's fantastic that the show stopped to take time to do that i don't know if that hit you or you thought about it at all oh it absolutely did whenever you played those clips for me originally i 100 was having a hard time discerning who was talking when i was like wait that was john kevin costner john like or or whatever like i was like wait hold on like i had to actually think about who was saying what when because they sounded so similar and the lines were so similar so yeah no i think it was amazing i you know i mean obviously tradition is so huge with the duttons and it continues to be important as we're watching you know yellowstone continue on i also have like this 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 little 
little nugget that I just want to throw out there too. There's this uh, concept of cellular memory. Are you familiar with that? Do you know anything about I, that? I am a little bit about it. I know about it with water sense memory. Uh, the idea that, that water has memory. So. so cells supposedly have memories and personality traits that they can be stored in any of your organs, not, not just your brain. And like they did this like survey with transplant recipients and, and, and like a decent percentage of patients felt that their personality actually changed after they had a transplant. That's fascinating to me because I think that we see so many individual traits that are passed along within these Duttons. Like I see Margaret and Elsa in Beth. You know, I see so many of these little, these moments that they're doing a great job with the lines, but they're doing an, an even better job, I think, with just their mannerisms, their way of handling situations really feels like you can see it. You know, you can see it pass through the generations. It's amazing. They're doing a great job with all of that. I, I definitely, guys, go back and watch it. It's from the end of episode 206. If you want to get the Yellowstone clip, and it's actually pretty early on in this episode of 1883, watch the similarities too, because you don't even get it from the audio, but like how Casey is kind of has his arm around Tate, and you know, he says, Look through here, and Tate looks through the scope. James does the same with Little John here. He tells him, Look through the scope. In Yellowstone, when Tate says he's got the crosshairs lined up, uh, Casey reaches over and takes the safety off of the rifle. Here, when Little John says he has it in the crosshairs, the deer in his crosshairs, James leans in and puts the hammer down on the rifle so it'll fire. Just those little moments and just the way they, they spread the blood on their cheeks and stuff. And then the whole discussion of why do we do this? John Dutton, Kevin Costner, John Dutton obviously has a much more gruff uh, way of explaining it about, you know, something kills everything, right? You know, it's hunt or be hunted kind of. And that's what it is to be an animal on this planet, right? Something bigger is always going to come along and kill you. No one dies of old age. I didn't put that in the clip. I mean, that clip ends by John telling Tate, no one dies of old age, something something always kills you in the end and james is kind of echoing and and the larger theme of we blood you we wear the blood of the animal to give thanks and honor the deer right the uh, that deer is going to give us life now james is echoing that here he explicitly says we honored the deer because we took a life to give us life but he also says every time we kill something it makes us a little less man and a little more animal all life is is trying to find the balance between that that is a powerful statement on what this show is about uh and and i think maybe is the thesis statement for what 1883 is going to be about finding the balance of how do we act like animals and not kill each other and and struggle and survive versus acting like men meaning people humans and finding a way to live in harmony and and live and build something together that is a struggle. That is a struggle, and especially in this this kind of no man's land that they're entering, that she calls it. That's a huge thing to be aware of going forward. This is a really important scene, I think, for understanding the Dutton psychology. But I think maybe the, what this show is going to be about in a in a really larger sense. There's that little scene where John starts to cry because he's talking too much, and uh, James loses his temper immediately. And uh, you and I just got finished talking on a large panel about the finale of Yellowstone and how we were. You and I, I don't know if we were talking on there or we were talking offline, but you and I talk frequently about how crying and being a Dutton just never go together. And well, even in 1883, it is not okay if you're a Dutton to cry. Like, knock that shit knock off. Knock it off. Knock it the hell <laughs> off, even if you're five years old. Uh, yeah. Shout out to uh, Audi 
Rick, who nails being a five-year-old so, so well. Uh, he's so adorable. His yes sirs, yes sir, yes sir, so freaking cute. And it just, and all the questions, it just, it, it's so realistic. I mean, I, you and I have both had the five-year-olds in our lives oh, at yeah. some point. My favorite version is is a five-year-old who's supposed to be quiet saying, am I being quiet? Am I being quiet? Right. And 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 just John being the, the classic TV dad, be like, you were being quiet until now, until you're not being quiet. <laughs> You know, but yeah, the constant questions. And then, you know, why is the deer scared of us, but not the horse and does not scared of us when we're on the horse? You know, it was it was like, yeah, I I get why he's asking all of those questions. So really, really great little father son bonding scene, which is not something again. It's been James and Elsa this whole show. So this is really the first time. It's really the first time Little John's had anything to do uh, really in the series. And I think it's kind of a big moment for the the psychology of the show. One last theme that was really uh, we touched on upon this already with Shay and how death seems to be looming for him. But I feel like death was looming large in this episode, mm-hmm. almost as like in a foreboding way. I want to play that clip from Elsa's voiceover at the start of the episode because it kind of sets the tone a little bit. Death is everywhere on the prairie in every form you can imagine. And if you your worst nightmare couldn't muster. Death hides in the creek beds. Possesses animals. It hides in tall grass, waiting. With every death, our father moved camp a little farther away. As if death was not the result of accidents and disease, but death was its own disease, and carelessness was contagious. Death seems to be a a sentient being, the way she talks about it, who is actively coming for all of them in this opening clip. And the idea that John is moving the family further and further away because it's contagious. Carelessness and death is maybe contagious. And But James, death comes for us all, doesn't it? I think that it was a great montage to show all the different ways that death comes for these people. I mean, that was a huge variety, the, the breaking of the back, the snake bite, the, the all the different parts to how death can get you that you just were not even thinking about at all. I thought long and hard about that carelessness is contagious and moving away. Here's the deal. I do think carelessness is contagious because I really understand how my brain works in terms of like an adrenaline rush. And I understand that when people get flustered, how they can then act in a way that that isn't uh, thoughtful, that isn't essentially careful. And so it does become contagious because the I vibe off of people. And if they're feeling anxious, if they're feeling flustered, they, they affect my chemistry and they make me feel like I'm unsure. And if you don't do things with purpose and mindfulness on something like like this kind of trek, yeah, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to second guess yourself when you should have done the right thing. And so for my own self, carelessness is 100% contagious. I choose to spend time around people who are as confident as possible because I find that confidence is also contagious. And I feel the same as with my kids. Like they, they 100% take, you know, their cue from me. And I think that works in the opposite way too. If, if I were to act like I didn't know what I was doing, if I was making mistakes, I think they take that same cue and they and they worry and they make mistakes. 
I, I think you're right. I think you're really right there. I, you know, I think it's important to pick up on the wording of Elsa's voice over here, too. Again, she's invoking nightmare imagery. You know, she says that there's death out there that even your worst nightmares couldn't uh, imagine. And again, every time the stream entry comes up, this has been such a recurring theme of the show. And it, it's just present always. But I, I can't think we I don't think we could ignore it. I think it's just such this I think it's this kind of psychology around the show, this dream and dreams and nightmares and what is real and what can come true and you know do we really appreciate the worst things can, that can happen but when she mentioned nightmare i instantly thought of claire uh from last week in her speech to uh, margaret around the campfire being the opening monologue the show has done a good job of bookending elsa's opening voiceover and her closing voiceover they're always almost always tied kind of thematically together i think every episode has has done that well so far and i think this one too this is the first time elsa's really seeing the dark side of what's happening here so far elsa's adventure has been that has been this kind of carefree adventure she's been out herding cattle oh my god she's been having this great time in the river like she's been really shielded from this dark side right she wasn't there when the bandits came through camp and killed mary abel and shot noemi's husband and claire ended up killing herself because of it she hasn't really seen that that dark side so this opening montage was interesting because it it seems to be elsa's first exposure to the dark underbelly of this journey but then you get it bookended in her two journey speech at the end of the episode which really is foreboding let's listen to how she ends the episode looking back there were two journeys one was filled with danger and death and despair. The other, adventure and wonder. I was on the latcher, and I loved it. Wait, grab that shoulder. I didn't know enough to know they would collide. I didn't know enough to know how cruel and uncaring this world can be. The world doesn't care if you die. They won't listen to your screams. If you bleed on the ground, the ground will drink it. It doesn't care that you're cut. And she goes on to say that if she meets God, she's going to ask, why would you make such beautiful things and then hide horrors in it? And the very final line is, then it hit me. God didn't make this for us. Very powerful closing sentiment, but really also setting that foreshadowing, setting that opening scene from the first episode. She, you know, she she doesn't know what she doesn't know. And what she doesn't know is that her world is about to become much more filled with death and pain and 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 heartbreak. That's foreshadowing, but it's so startling hearing a character talk about it who doesn't know it's actually coming. It's, yeah. it's, it's really well done. I, I think anyway, I, I think it really hits home in a, in a very poignant way, the way they do it. It also feels like when you hear children, most especially like teenagers talk about what they're going to do in their life, all their big plans and, and how carefully planned out it is. And, and I got to a point in my, later 20s where I have all these babies and everything didn't go the way I planned, where I could just, instead of in any way debating it with them, I could just smile and say, good luck with that. <laughs> like, I hope it turns out the way you think it's going to turn out because it is, it is also just like a, just like a banner kind of milestone moment for, for teenagers to go through where, you know, they thought the whole world looked one way. They didn't realize how protected they were for so long. And, uh, and now they're starting to see the world for what it is and, mm -hmm. and bad things are starting to happen to them personally that can't be stopped. 
we're going to see that more and more with Elsa. And then I think I think we're going to see that with little John, too, as we move forward. Coming of age is not just about hormones and love and and there is seeing the world for what it really is. Her realization that the ground doesn't care that you're cut. It just drinks your blood all the same. That was really, really great imagery that I I, I took that in. I I, took that in hard. I was like thinking like, damn, it's it totally does. And like and the way that the dust just goes over the top of it and then it just kind of goes away. You're like, oh. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just swallows you up. Right. It, you're yeah. right. It's not for you. It's 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 powerful and it's it's hard to hear, but it's also necessary to hear. Right. You have to you can't take things for granted, nor can you expect it all to be rolled out for you in an easy way. If you want it, you got to fight for it and you have to appreciate what you have while you have it. But that's the doom and gloom part of her journey in this episode and this foreshadowing of of coming death and destruction and despair. But then there's flirting and flirting is fun, Caroline. I love the whole thing. I loved that Elsa is so cutting with him. Just takes it. You know, it has to be he like, likes oh, it man. though, right? <laughs> well, and you know, she's not, she's not a quote-unquote lady if you will in terms of being so demure and whatnot she's willing to just be blunt and be a little you know a little nasty to him and i think i think it's hilarious i love it it's obviously a woman after my own heart (laughs) cowgirl isn't the one you marry it's the one you think about when your wife's not around right i mean that's when he says she is flirting kind of mean the way she does it but she's flirting made me laugh out loud i listened to it a bunch of times <laughs> she's kind of mean the way she does it but brother <laughs> that's that's your experience with ladies going forward just get used to it so definitely the best women for sure are the are the ones that do it a little mean <laughs> uh, they're, they're the ones who are gonna make it worth it when it uh, all pays off i think so he reminds me of Ryan a lot. Just a okay, cowboy, yeah. just a cowboy who likes being a cowboy and likes <laughs> likes all the perks that come with it, ladies and horse and otherwise. Uh, yeah. So uh, my thought I was starting before was I really like him. Every passing episode, I like them together. I like their banter and their flirting. I think the show's handling it really well. It's just making me very trepidatious that he's going to turn out to be a bad guy, right? Oh, we don't. We, well, we we don't know. We don't really know these guys. I'm gonna right? go with he's probably not a bad guy. I don't think because I think he's so young and kind of still fresh in the world. But I will go back to the to the this is the time when you sit back and you say good luck with that, because I I think the world is going to create choices and forks in the road where he could turn out to be a a negative thing for Elsa, but not necessarily a bad guy. But just it didn't he, he didn't make the choice. Someone would hope he did. Or the other avenue that I was I was hitting on in this episode. And it was poking at my brain last week and then I kind of fully came to the front and formed. And this one is that, you know, best friends can sometimes be very problematic to your relationships uh, when when especially when less time is being paid to them. So Mm. something to look out for. Uh, We have to play the courting clip because... There, there is a uh, a breath that Tim uh, McGraw gives at the end that is maybe the greatest dad thing I've ever heard. Let's listen to this courting clip real quick. You want to court my daughter? You can. Court? You can do it. Not sure what it means. My son, it means you can talk and I'm talk and go on rides and talk. We've kind of been doing that. You know the drill, then. You break her heart, get handsy. You and me gonna have a problem. 
Do you find handsy? Joe. In a bad, bad time to tell it. Hmm. Sorry. Sorry. That sigh he gives through his nose. I'm going to try and repeat it here. It's it's something like. It yeah. is it is fantastic. It, is, it, it reminds me literally of every dad who is upset with the thing that some young <laughs> punk just said. Tim McGraw is definitely channeling him being a father of three girls uh, in that scene there, and I think it's great. Bad joke, sorry. Wrong time to make a joke. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, it was great. It was great. Uh, I don't know. I think I think that maybe hit on everything. I, yeah, get... I think it's time for some Sam Elliott. Yeah, let's uh, let's hit now to our roundtable virtual roundtable press interview with Sam Elliott. We'll start with Caroline from Pop Culture Review. Hi, Sam. Thanks for being with us this morning. The series opens with Shay losing his wife and daughter and literally having to burn his house down. He's killed countless men in his life, but he still has tremendous empathy in his heart for the people under his care. Can you talk to us about what drives Shay to keep going, how he maintains any shred of a gentle heart with all that he's been through? Well, I don't know. I, I... I, I think empathy is, you know, it's, you're either empathetic or you're not. And I think Shay Brennan is empathetic. You know, it's it's one of the things that builds up or makes his character so complex for me as an actor. I mean, he's, he's willing to shoot somebody in the head for stealing food. And at the same time, he cries over the immigrants that he loses as he cried over his family that he lost. It's, uh, it's just part of his nature. Next, we have Sterling from Taste of Country. Hey, Sam. Hi, Sterling. Um, so picking up on that same question, a uh, different theme, when you have to do, your character has a long arc of sadness on this show due to the opening scene and the, the emotional fallout from it. Do you have the ability to shake that off when you walk away from the set or does that kind of thing stay with you when you're not performing? No, I've, I've never really been haunted. I know a lot of people that talk about, you know, taking it with them, taking it home and that, but maybe it's because I'm not an actor that anybody's going to accuse of being a chameleon. You know, I get so deep into a part that I become someone else some some other level um i can appreciate that if if that's the way you work that it would take a long time to shake it off you know certainly when, when you do anything that's an emotional scene you carry it for a while you're becoming a little vulnerable probably ultra sensitive if nothing else and i remember that day when we did that stuff anytime i do something where i go deep on an emotional level it it, it takes me away you know, takes me away. I remember that the last scene in Star is Born when I was sitting on a couch with Stephanie. I'd, I'd laid waste to me for a couple of days, you know, only because I felt what I was feeling at the time. And I loved her so dearly and loved Bradley so dearly that it was all very real to me. When it becomes real, when it's, when you're telling the truth and you're being honest about whatever it is you're doing, that's when it most deeply affects me. And I try to tell the truth all the time. So, Next, we have E.L. from Comic Book Resources. Hey, Sam. Thanks for chatting with us today. Of course. Thank you. 
So I'm curious, you're known for playing these gruff cowboy characters. What makes Shay Brennan different? What drew you to this character? I just think there's a lot more to Shay than some of the other cowboys that I've played. You know, he's got a he's got a lot of issues and he's complex in some ways. Number one, because he's a veteran of the Civil War. We all know what being a veteran is today. Call it what they call it what you want. Number two, he loses his family in the first episode right off the top. And then he's in charge of these immigrants. And he takes that very seriously. He's also a Pinkerton, which I'm not even sure how that involves anything other than he's in the Pinkerton office in the beginning, because it's never mentioned again. But, you know, it's, he's a complex character. He's, he, you know, he's, he'll cry over the immigrants that drowned in the river. And at the same time, he'll shoot some guy in the head because he stole somebody's bacon. You know, he's a, he's a complex man. Next, we have Nick with Cinema Blend. Hello. Hello, Sam. It is an honor. Hi, Nick. Thank you. I, I wondered if, like, you and Taylor seem like a dream team for any medium, I guess. So can you talk about working with him and how how that was compared to Westerns elsewhere in your career? Hey, I've never worked with Taylor, like any, anyone like Taylor before. I mean, you know, I, mean, I certainly have worked with some good directors. I don't mean that, but <clears throat> Taylor is so talented and so complex on so many levels that I would say that I've never worked in with anyone like him. That said, I think we, we share a lot of common bones. You know, he's, he has his love and understanding of the West and the history of the West, the history of this country that makes him the right guy to make a project like this, you know, tell a tale on the Oregon Trail. You know, it's, uh, I don't know a lot of other people around that could pull that off, you know, and it's it's been a joy working with him. I think for everybody. I think I can speak for the entire cast, you know. And Taylor's, you know, Yellowstone is all over this. We're tainted by Yellowstone, which on some level I can't stand because I think 1883 stands alone, and and will once it comes out, people are going to say, oh yeah. Well, the only connection there is that it got John Dutton to Montana, you know. But Taylor is all over everything in this thing. He's like Yellowstone, you know, I mean, he's everywhere. So it's a joy to work with him. You know, he's all powerful and all that, but he's a, he's a nice man on top of it. He's a brilliant horseman. He's done more for the horse industry than anybody that I know of in in my lifetime. I mean, it's a, it's a joy to work with him. Thank you. He's a taskmaster. He told me in the beginning when we first started this thing, and he was trying to convince me to do it, or maybe about the time that I'd said I was going to do it. He says, you're going to hate me at the end of this fucking thing. So, you know, we're, we're approaching the end and I have yet to hate him. So we'll see what happens. And next we have Michael from Pop Culture Review. Hey, Sam, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Good, Michael. Thank you. So, you know, I think a lot of people associate you as a cowboy. They think of you that way. What is it about that genre and those stories? What is it about 1883's story that resonates with you? Why, what draws you to this world? I think on some level, <clears throat> Michael, it's just kind of the luck of the draw. 
it's where my career took me. I think I have a lot of, I don't know, my family's all from West Texas, like for several generations. I'm the only one in my immediate family was not born in Texas. I was born in California, which is immaterial to your question, but there's just something about the simplicity of this genre. You know, it's pretty black and white. There's not a lot of gray area. You know, it's classic struggles, you know, man against man, man against nature, man against himself, you know, and it's just those, that always appealed to me. It always appealed to me. It's not, you know, it's not brain surgery, but, you know, it's something that appealed to me. Being outdoors, the outdoors is a, is a prime character in any Western, you know, the elements, you know, and I just, I think it's just kind of the nature of my career that they have come my way is Westerns. I think you do it better than most. I don't know that everyone can do it You're as well as you kind. do it though. So. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Sam, tell us a little bit about Shay's relationship with Thomas. You guys are such a perfect balance to one another. I'm so curious to find out more about their backstory. What can you tell us about working with LaMonica? Number one, I love LaMonica. And that's probably that relationship is most important to me in, in the entire show. The fact that there's a black man traveling with a white man or a white man traveling with a black man in, 18, in the 1800s is something that crossed me right in the beginning. I just thought, wow, I can't wait for that. And then I got down there and met Lamonic Garrett and I thought, holy shit, who is this monster? You know what I mean? <laughs> Lamonic is the most fit human being I've ever worked with. And he's also the nicest man I've ever worked with. It's incredible. And we're having a lot of fun. Shay and in terms of their history, they both served in the war, in the Civil War. This is according to Taylor. Taylor said that Lamonica rode with a a group called the Buffalo Soldiers, which was an all-black unit. But he also said that Shay might have been there with him. And that made my made me scratch my head because I've seen a lot of photographs of the Buffalo soldiers over the years, and there was never a black man amongst their or a white man amongst their ranks. So I'm not sure where Taylor came up with that thought. But the fact that they're there together and you know, Thomas kind of takes care of Shay along the road, you know. I mean, he keeps talking about her committing suicide every morning. You know, that's just part of their deal. Thomas's uh, humor seems to bring out Shay's softer side. Bring out his softer side? Yes. I think he does. His, certainly his compassionate side. He, you know, I think, I think Shay's a bit of a psycho on some level. I've thought about <laughs> that. I'm not... I'm not sure that that's fair to say, but he's, he's deeply troubled. You know, and he goes off on people and, you know, Thomas brings him back. Thomas takes care of him, brings him back. So I love that relationship. I love that relationship and Thomas and, you know, and his, his love are the only two well, I'm not going to, I shouldn't, I can't go there for the viewers. But Thomas makes it to Oregon. 
<laughs> well, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you. I just want to give another shout out to IDPR for helping coordinate all of these interviews you've been hearing the last few weeks. We have one more coming up next week with LaMonica Garrett uh, that I'm excited for you guys to hear. And again, just a big thank you to Sam Elliott and all the cast members uh, for having made themselves available and talk to all of us uh, in the press and, and answer our questions. I was uh, I was happy to get to talk to Sam. How about, how about you? What did you think of your interview with Sam? Oh, he was wonderful. He was so authentically him, you know, like you don't know if he's like playing a part as the cowboy on the screen screen and he feels like he's the real deal so i loved getting a chance to talk to him one thing i wanted to bring up to you and i don't know why it hit me in this episode and it really hadn't beforehand yes the costuming in the show i feel like is just outrageous not only mm-hmm. in its scope there are so many extras in the show and they're all outfitted in cost in period costume but i feel like they especially with the immigrants have done such a good job of cueing us to who is a German, who is a Russian, who is a gypsy, without having to hear any of the dialogue. I, I, I Maybe because of the plot line in this episode, I was paying attention to it more. But I feel like I have such a good sense of who these people are just based on how they're dressed. And that all comes down to the costuming and, and part of the, the part of the production design. You're someone who notices behind the, you know, the, that, that kind of aesthetic in the show, as well as, you know, set decoration. Have, have you picked up on it? Do you have any thoughts about the costuming in the show? I did. I I actually, small little things, it's the smallest of things, I think, that that catch my eye. I was completely noting Elsa's dress because we got a lot of like from behind kind of looks at her when Mm -hmm. she was riding away. And so I was noticing like her belt and I was noticing Margaret's like her hat's more like a top hat kind of thing. And I was thinking back to there was another Western that I just watched. Oh, my gosh. The Harder They Fall. And the one woman wears a top hat very similarly to her. and, And it was just I I don't know. I was just kind of putting it together, like little nuggets of like, okay, this is, you know, you have a good sense of like, what does the 1920s look like? Okay, Uh that's like a flapper outfit. Got it. Like, this is like, okay, so this is what the 1880s like looks like, you know, like I have a much better sense of, of what the aesthetic was. And I do think they're doing a great job. Very subtle things, difference between like, say, Joseph and Shay and, and Thomas and James, even though they're all basically, you know, men dressing of the same time period, but very different. Different reflecting different status, different. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. different places in the country where they come from, right? I mean, mm-hmm. come from Tennessee, he's going to be more of a Southern gentleman. I've noticed he's always wearing a vest. He, his outfits are always on point, even when he's just out wrangling cattle, James, <laughs> you know, whereas Thomas is always in his Buffalo Soldier outfit and mm-hmm. Shay is, you know, just looking hot and sweaty all the time, you know, and he is working way too hard for a guy his age. So, you know, just when you said that, it actually just like hit me. I bet Thomas, I appreciate that he wears his military uniform. There's something that's like some instant respect and some different feel towards that and it makes sense to me why, why thomas would continue to wear it and a lot of pride, obviously. A pride, and I think armor also, right? He wants I you think to. So. He wants you to know before you ever see that tiny silver badge on his chest. He yeah. wants you to know from a distance. He is not someone to fuck with. So uh, right, yeah. right, and 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 even and I, was, it works. I was, and it works. I was going even a little further and say say that it, it garnishes respect right away. Oh too. yes, yes. You know, not just like a threatening way, but like a like a, I respect that you served our country, like that type of thing too. You know, yeah. I think respect. I think I would say respect and fear are walking such a fine line in this world um among other men anyway they may not respect him those germans but they see that uniform they're gonna maybe fear him the fact he's still standing 20 plus years after the war 
or 18 years. We know, in fact, after the war is over and he's still standing and still wearing that uniform, that says something about him. So he's a guy I'm going to give a wide berth to before he I even mean, starts swinging his Additionally, we can go back to the idea that nobody has like 10 outfits. So sure, yeah, sure. this may be the one and only outfit he has. But for sure, there's there's a lot to it. And I think, I think you're right about things like the vest on James that shouldn't be overlooked. Like there's a lot of small moments here. Just a nice little shout out. Uh, maybe we'll try and get the costume designer on uh, to to speak to them. Yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed with the production design of the show. So from the costuming and the this, the the aesthetics and the look, it's it's uh, it blows me away every week. So uh, a little programming note: if you're depending on when you're hearing this, no new episode four on January second. The show is running a making of called 1883: The Road West uh, that you should definitely go check out on Paramount Plus. Uh, episode four is due out to come out on January 9th. so they're taking a week off. Uh, January second is the Yellowstone. Uh, hour and a half finale also if you're looking for something to watch and as far as we know there will be no more episodes of 1883 released on paramount network they had been releasing episodes one and two right after yellowstone i believe beginning with episode four you can only get that out paramount plus streaming so just a little bit of programming note depending on when you're listening to this episode this is caroline and this is mike thank you for listening to the yellowstone podcast 1883 episodes if you wouldn't mind going to apple podcast spotify podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate review and subscribe and while you're there especially at apple and spotify podcasts if you could leave us a five-star review that would be fantastic so then when we think about you we can say you're magnificent thanks for listening thank you for listening this has been an original pod clubhouse production pod clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.